0: And now, 1 Kings chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, king, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Haybor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out, before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep My commandments and My statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by My servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and the warnings He gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. Until the Lord had removed Israel out of His sight. As He had spoken by all His servants the prophets, so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. It is an interesting providence today. I know that some of you notice these providences because you mentioned them to me after the morning service. When it just so happens that the scripture reading dovetails with the sermon. Or a song with the scripture reading. Or the prayer. This morning we have the opportunity of participating in and observing a baptism and the Lord's Supper. Covenant markers of God's relationship with His people. And I think it's very appropriate that we have those observations and those sacraments as we look together at Second Kings 17. Because 2 Kings 17 reminds us of the importance of covenant duties, of God's faithfulness, but also of His judgment. It's not sufficient to simply rest in the past or to rest in what your fathers or grandfathers had done. But you must have a vital relationship with the Lord God to truly be in covenant with Him. And we're seeing this morning the effects of falsehood and pretending, stripped bare. We're seeing, quite frankly, as the sermon title says, the end of the line for Israel. From this point on, the next few weeks, we will only deal with Judah because Israel now will cease to exist. Their name is being blotted out of the book. Because they didn't think it was that important to have a relationship with the Lord God. This is a story about rejection. And the sadness of it is, it's not as much about the rejection of God, of His people, but of Israel, of the merciful, redeeming, giving God, trying to find hope and redemption elsewhere. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three things. First, I would like us to see redemption rejected. The redemption that God provided to His people, specifically in the form of release from bondage, has been rejected by Israel. And then next, we will see mercy rejected, as Israel rejects God's mercy. And then finally, we will see that this happens because the covenant of God is rejected by the people of Israel. Redemption rejected, mercy rejected, and covenant rejected. Well, let's look then together at the beginning of chapter 17. we finally come to that point where judgment arrives. We've seen glimpses of it in the warnings of the prophets. We saw a mini version in 2 Kings 13 as Israel was taken out into tents and they were not in their land dwelling as they should be. We've seen it threatened over and over again. And now finally that day has arrived. The king of Assyria is on the scene and his presence is palpable. Look at the first six verses and let your eye glance to how many times the king of Assyria is mentioned. Over and over again in verse two, in verse three, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6. It's as if somewhere off the side of the stage, the large stomping footprints of doom can be heard. The knock at the end of the day has come. And Hosea does what any stupid king of Israel would do. We've seen it over and over again, haven't we? As the king of Assyria is just about to take over what is left of the little rump state of Israel, Hosea decides it would be a good idea to trust in the king of Egypt. A guy whose name is So. Well, so is not even a so-so king of Egypt. You see, when you think of Egypt, you think of pyramids, and you think of pharaohs, and you think of, so let it be written, so let it be done. But at this point in history, Egypt is a second-rate, third-rate power. There's been a lot of squabbling and civil wars going on. Egypt would be the modern equivalent of trusting in France to protect you. They don't exactly have a great zeal for war right now. Now, why would Hosea do this? All he had to do was keep paying off the protection money and he'd be fine. Is it because suddenly he got this pang of conscience that he shouldn't pay protection money? No. It's the outworking of the judgment of God. You see... Verse 6 here, the king of Assyria capturing Samaria is the fulfillment of a prophecy that we've looked at together. It's been a while. 1 Kings 14, 14. You remember that? When Jeroboam sent his wife to do his dirty work, and the prophet said, your people will go into exile because of your idolatry. 200 some odd years later. It's happened. This is a culmination of two centuries of stupidity and sin. Don't say God's not patient. Again, to put it in perspective, about the amount of time that America has been in existence. God has been patient with Israel, storing up His wrath. Now, notice also that Hosea is not even the worst king they've ever had. Our author goes out of the way to say well, he was bad but not really as bad as other people. And that lets us know, I think not that poor Hosea he was only a mediocre sinner but rather that this is a culmination of punishment for faithlessness in Israel. It's like Well, you parents know the drill. It's when your child is disobedient over and over again, and there is the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. And it's probably not even the worst thing that they've done all day. But it rains down punishment from all of the disobedience that has been stored up and mercifully not brought forward. That's what Israel is experiencing here. This is not about Hosea. This is about Israel and its faithlessness. And the judgment is fearful, isn't it? Samaria is besieged for three years. Now imagine that. Imagine you were trapped in the city of Houston for three years. We know that Samaria had large walls and it was built up on a hill and it had Grain stores in the city So that they could survive a very long siege Could you imagine living there for three years? You think waiting to hear What the latest bailout bill will be like Is nerve wracking How about getting up in the morning And wondering whether the office will be there Or whether it will be destroyed By an Assyrian catapult Three years long And all that time, you can imagine, ordinary families, armies, politicians, would be hoping against hope for something to happen. They're trapped in the city. They don't know. Maybe another empire will attack. Maybe the king of Assyria will die, and his son will be bored with Samaria and leave. Maybe Judah will come to our rescue. Yeah, right. Hoping against hope for release, for redemption. But do you notice what we don't see in any of those first verses? No cries for repentance. No seeking the Lord God and His redemption or release. Just simply hoping against hope that something will happen. And the judgment comes down as the city falls and they are carted away literally all across the world. Hundreds of miles away they are taken. These cities that are described are northeast of Nineveh. Look at it on a map the back of your Bible. The cities of the Medes that are described here were not even controlled by the Assyrians until 716 B.C., seven years later. So this is a long, methodical, precise, and complete deportation of Israel. It's so complete that when the king of Assyria brings new people in, they take over the country. It's as if the entire state of Texas is shipped out and filled up with people from Belgium, or the Congo, or Malaysia. It is a completely devastating judgment. So the question then comes to us, how do we explain this judgment? Why does this judgment come here? The first question we might ask ourselves is, who is it that was rejected by Israel? Verse 7 gives us the answer to that. It describes the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, it is God that they have rejected. It is God who is the cause of this. All this happened because the people of Israel sinned against God. And they sinned against the God who redeems. The God who had brought them out of bondage. The God who had rescued them from slavery. The God who had lavished His love and His care upon them. Who had given them a land. Who had given them His law. Who had given them a king. And for two hundred years, Israel said, talk to the hand. Get away from me, God. I don't want you. For two hundred (coughs) years. How was he rejected? That's interesting as well. Because look at what Our author describes in verse 8, "...they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out. And the people did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. (coughs) They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree, and there they made offerings on all the high places." You see, Israel was passionate about idolatry. There wasn't a place that they couldn't find to set up a false idol. From the backwater villages to the fortified towns, everywhere that the eye could see, they dumped the filth of idolatry. They were very passionate. (coughs) They were very sincere. And they were very wicked. They rejected God with a sense of thoughtlessness. Notice what the text says. It says the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord things that were not right. This, <coughs> excuse me. This is a word that is only used here in the Bible. And so it's a little bit difficult to translate. It has a root That can mean either to cover or to lay over. And so you can interpret it one of two ways, both of which I think give the picture of Israel. Either they're acting secretly, thinking they can hide their sin from God. Have you ever been there? If you have, you're just as foolish as the Israelites. Or, they have overlaid... Their own devices, their own worship on top of mixed it together with the worship of God. They have set up kind of a half-breed worship. Both, both ways of doing this are anathema to God. They show that they don't want God and Him exclusively. They're passionate about other things than God. Why did they reject the Lord God? Well, it's because they wanted to be like the Joneses. They wanted to drive the cars their neighbors drove. They wanted to be invited to the parties that their neighbors are invited to. They wanted to be in the kids' clubs that the neighbors' kids were in. They wanted to be well thought of like everyone else in the neighborhood. (coughs) They wanted the things that far too often the people of God clamor after to be like the world. And so they set up world worship and world gods and world sacrifices. And this is a rejection of God and His grace. And a sad contrast with verse 7 in which God took them out from the nations and separated them out as a people. They have rejected the redemption of God. But they have also rejected the mercy of God. Because you see, this rejection doesn't come in a vacuum. Look at verse 13. I've told you before and I'll tell you again. It's sometimes the little words in the Bible that cut hardest. Verse 13 begins, Yet... You see, Israel had done all these things throughout its history, and yet, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and by every seer. He had said to them, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes. You see, God sent a warning, and that warning arrives. And it arrives in a context. You see, God had given this warning before any of this had happened. Before day number one of the land of Israel, God said in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, at the outset of the covenant, at the covenant entrance, He said, Turn from evil. Obey My law. Obey My statutes. In much the same way that we say to Bryn at the entrance of the covenant, follow the Lord. Obey His law. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Reject evil. But Israel didn't want to listen. Instead, God sends second and third and fourth versions of His law through the prophets, through seers, For two hundred years he is patient, but Israel will not listen. They are hard-hearted. Verse fourteen. They are stubborn, stubborn as a mule. Have you ever been on one of these hiking trips and tried to move a mule that didn't want to move? You could pull the rope. You could push the backside of the mule. You can kick the mule. You can grab the mule by the neck. You can do whatever you want to do and that mule is not going to move because he is stubborn and is in his place. That's what Israel is like. A hard-hearted, unbelieving people. They would not listen because they did not believe the Lord their God. This doesn't happen by accident. You see, the only way To obey God is to believe in Him first. You don't start by obeying. You can't work up obedience. We see this all throughout the Scriptures. We see this in the wilderness wanderings of Israel. We see it in the rejection of Jesus Christ by the Pharisees. Unless you believe in God, unless you trust Him, there's nothing you can do. You don't want to do it. You must start by believing. The writer of the book of Hebrews understood about this. Because he cast this warning before the church. He said, see that you listen to Him who speaks. Christian. Because you see it is possible for you too to be pretending to be a part of the people of God. To be relying upon what your great-grandparents had done. And when that day comes, that horrible day of judgment, God does not want to hear, my great uncle was a charter member of First Presbyterian Church. It will not help. This is what the people of Israel were counting on. They got this warning and they rejected it. Why did they need this warning? Well, let's explain it for a bit. Let's look at verse 15. Verses 15-17 through pile down on us with verbs of shame and sorrow. Look at their rejection of God. They don't just not want His statutes. They despise them. They don't just forget about His commandments. They abandon them completely. They burn their sons and their daughters. They sell themselves over into slavery. They reverse the exodus. This language here about being sold over is reminiscent of a previous king, King Ahab, when it was said that there was no one like Ahab in 1 Kings 21 who sold himself to do evil. They reject God completely. And because of that, They are changed. They are hardened. Look at verse 15. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them. Now, this word here for idol in Hebrew is very interesting. It means idol. But it gets its meaning of idol from the substance of the word. It's the same word that we looked at last year now, in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Remember? Emptiness of emptiness, all is emptiness. Worthlessness of worthlessness, all is worthlessness. You see, idols are idols because they are worthless. They are worth less than the gum that you scrape off the bottom of your shoe. At least you might be able to rinse that off and use it for something constructive. But you see, they follow after worthlessness and they become worthless. They are zeros. Because of their pursuit, they are pursuing it. This is the biblical principle of you are what you eat. But it's not that you'll turn into a tomato or a rutabaga It's that you are what you worship. If you seek after worthlessness, you become worthless. So the question then comes to you. What do you love? What do others think about you when they see you? When they look at you, do they see, ooh, avid golfer? Ooh, craft person. Baseball nut. Or do they see Christian? Follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you can be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and a baseball nut at the same time. But only in that order. You must seek first after the Lord. You must love Him first. You cannot pursue other things instead of God. In addition to God, you must seek God first and then other things are added to you. And you see, the result of rejecting all this mercy after seeking after worthless idols is that they are removed from the sight of God. You see, no faith means No obedience, because obedience is submission to the one whom you have faith in. And the language here is ironic. By now you're probably used to the sarcasm at times that our author will use. If we look here at verse 22, he says, The people of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. They did not depart from them until the Lord Israel removed Israel out of His sight. Those two words, depart and removed, are the same Hebrew word. You see, what our author is saying is, they did not depart from their sin, so God departed them right out of the land. And right out from His sight. But that's not the worst of it. You see, this is not just about Geography. This is not just about losing the land. This is about the end of verse 20, being cast out from the sight of God. Verse 23, being removed out of His sight. You see, this is about losing fellowship with God forever. And you see, dear ones, this is the true pain of hell. It's not that there'll be rats, or that it's hot, or that it's dark, or that there's a scary being running around in a red suit with horns. The fearful, horrifying pain of hell is never being with God again. Ever. Never experiencing His mercy never experiencing His patience, never experiencing His love, but rather simply having His wrath abide upon you forever. If you do not have faith, don't worry about obedience. You must come to the One who lives and who speaks and calls you, for fearful judgment awaits otherwise. That is the true horror of rejecting the mercy of God, being separated from Him forever. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that if this people of Israel reject the redemption of God and they reject the mercy of God, that they then reject the covenant of God. For what is the covenant of God but relationship with Him, being united with God? And so we, be, we see that foolishness then begins to arrive on the scene as God's covenant is ripped apart at the seams because of the faithlessness of Israel. We look here at verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Qadha, Avah, Hamath, Sepharim, and he places them in Samaria. Now, it shouldn't surprise you those words are hard to pronounce. You're looking at them now and wondering, okay, Babylon I know, I don't know where any of those other places are. I think that's kind of the point. God brings in people from places that we don't even know are places through the king of Assyria in a deliberate policy to stamp out, to wipe out Israel. And there's a supreme irony here. Do you notice where they are? They're in the land. They're in the promised land. You see, what God has done is after He's driven out the pagans and planted His people, His people have started to act like pagans so He treats them like pagans and drives them out and gives the land back to the pagans. You see, it's God's way of showing, I think, that He does not owe us. No one could stand up and say, Oh, but, excuse me, Lord God, um, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, You promised us this land. It really doesn't matter what we do. This is ours forever. We, we, we really don't like You. We don't believe in You. But we'll take that one promise. You see, God doesn't owe you something. What God owes you only is Himself. If He is united to you. If you are in relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, God uses the king of Assyria to shake up this whole land. And it sets off a complete spiritual chaos. There's all of these... Tribes come in and they all have their own God and they all worship him and it's it's just a complete chaos. It's kind of like I was trying to think of an example. It's kind of, maybe this isn't true now. It's kind of like old school college cafeteria. You know, we had different kinds of food in different places and people weren't sure which line they were in and they cut and they move. I have some spaghetti, ooh, mashed potatoes, put that on my plate too. You know, things that don't even seem to go together. You can grab whatever you want. Mom's not there to tell you you can't do that. Stick it on the plate. That's kind of what it's like here, but in a spiritual fashion. You want a little bit of Chemosh? Go ahead and get him. You want to mix in a little bit of Baal worship? Go ahead. doesn't matter. It's a complete chaos. And yet at the same time, this is proper cosmopolitanism. This is the rebuilding of Israel. This is the marketplace where every idea is equal, except for saying that there's only one way. Reminds us a bit, perhaps, of our own nation, cosmopolitaness. There's a problem, though. These people are in there. They've got their spiritual cafeteria, but they don't know how to work the utensils. The ketchup bottle they can't open. You see, they're ignorant of what's going on. They do know something's going on. Lions are coming in. Not lions and tigers and bears, just lions. It's more than enough to scare you. They come in, they're killing people, ripping them apart. And the people are saying, what do we do? Someone gets a bright idea. Wait a minute. This is a this is the land of Israel. They've got to have their own God, right? I mean, every place, every city has its own God. He's probably angry. We need to know the right way to stop him from being angry. Put in a phone call to the king of Assyria. And they do. And they say, could you please send us down a priest so we can figure out the right way so that this local deity will stop being angry and sending lions against us. And so they do. They find a priest. Can you imagine what this priest is like? He's an exile from Israel. And he comes and he sets up in all places of Bethel which is one of the two places with the golden calf. And so what they do is they try and figure out the rules or the rituals that are supposed to occur. Verse 26. This word here, they do not know the law of the God of the land. That word for law is mishpat. And it is the word that is also used for rules. You know, like at a game night, when you open up the game... You can't just play a game however you want. You get out the little rule book. Sometimes it's on the back of the box. Sometimes it's a little piece of paper. And you have to follow the rules. That's what they want to do. They want to follow the rules. And so they bring in this priest to figure out how the rules are so they can get God off their back. Now you know why the Samaritans are so hated in the New Testament. It's these people. Brought in by the Assyrians. Their only concern about God is how can we get God off our back? What's the magic words we could say to get Him off our back? And so if we think about this kind of foolishness, very briefly we can explain it. Their attitude toward God is that God is a good luck charm. You see, they're really only interested in getting rid of the lions. Unless you think that would never happen in America, I remind you to think back in your mind about conversations you had with people about spirituality on September 14th or September 15th after the two towers fell. How it seemed that everyone was open to spiritual things. You see, they weren't open to spiritual things. They were open to God getting problems off their back. They didn't like having buildings fall down. And who would? These people didn't like being eaten by lions. Who would? But you see, God is not a good luck charm. Is that how you view God? You see, that's a temptation we all face to put God in the box that says, good luck charm, and when I need Him, I bring Him out, and I rub Him really hard, and I hope good things happen. That explains part of the foolishness. Another part is explained by the fact that they have do-it-yourself gods. And this is how they view God. Just look down at the text from verse 29 to verse 31. And count how many times the word made is used. They made gods. They made Sukkoth-Banoff. Over and over again, they made the gods and they put them. The gods that they had made. You see, they think they can make gods and make it work. This, dear friends, is civil religion. And that also is alive and well in our day and age. Finally, this foolishness can be explained by their trying to live without God, to have religion without God. Look at verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did. So they do to this day. You see, religion is not a good thing in and of itself. These people were trying hard and sincerely to have religion. And it was to their condemnation that they did so. You see, God does not want you to look to the pomp and the ceremony. He doesn't want you to look to what you can get out of religion. You are to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the main reasons that so often we have this supper. To remind us of what God has done. To remind us to look to Him. To remind us to look to His work. This is what God calls us to to a relationship with Him, to be in covenant with Him, to accept His mercy, to receive His redemption because of the work of another. That is the challenge for you today, Christian. It's the challenge for how you raise your children, parents. To be with God. Not just to know about it.